My name is Anne-Marie Nihorany. I'm a poet from the Donegal Gaeltacht. I'm also a creative writing facilitator and I have a full-time practice collaborating with artists in different disciplines. I'm Rosie Mandana. I'm a playwright and I do other bits. Uh, my name is Michael O'Loughlin. I'm a poet, translator, uh, critic and occasional commentator. Welcome to the Curiosity Series, an Arts Council podcast commissioned as part of the Council's 70th anniversary celebrations. I'm your host, Maeve Higgins. I'm a writer, comedian, podcaster and all-round curious person. In each episode, you'll hear artists involved in music, dance, poetry, literature, visual arts and theatre in conversation with me as they get curious about each other's work, explore the integral role that creativity has played in their lives and discuss the broader issues and themes that connect their art. In our final episode of the series, I'm joined by three writers from three different generations. Poet Anne-Marie Nicaron, playwright Rosaline McDonough and poet, translator and critic Michael O'Loughlin. Our conversation today explores the themes and issues that have shaped their artistic work and lives. We spoke about insider-outsider perspectives in art, stepping into your own creative power, writing about family, politics and a lot more. So let's meet our guests. I think for this episode, what we wanted to hear about was uh, kind of shared themes in your work. Um, So one big juicy topic that I'd love to hear from each one of you is the role of outsider. And that is the role of outsider in society. Um, Rosaline, I'd love to hear from you about how your own experiences of being, we say like on the edge of mainstream culture. Is that a fair is that a fair statement even? And and if so, how so? I think it's problematic. I think it's assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very settled, centric approach. Mm-hmm. I like to think I'm very edgy, but I'm not on the edge. Um, the whole idea of marginal marginalization and all that stuff. I mean, that may be how you're perceived and often you may feel isolated and and all that stuff as an artist. But as a person, I kind of feel enriched, belonging to a, a community so, outside what? Mm-hmm. You know, outside, you know, I'm the centre of my own world and hopefully the centre of one or two other people's as well. But I, I think we've borrowed that language from the 1980s from people like... Alice Walker, Bell Hooks, strong, anti-racist, feminist. Mm-hmm. But I think we need a new, a new dialogue and that stuff. Yeah. And I don't think outsider insider works because it's about 
context. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'm in the middle and I have a lot of power. Yeah. And sometimes I'm on the, the outside and that's okay too for a short while, not too often. But you know what I mean? I do know what you now, mean. If you're yeah. asking me, I don't want to hug. If you're asking me about identity, politics, and where that positions me, or positions disabled people, disabled women, travellers, that's a different kind of question. And mm. I think it's kind of not so much outside or inside, or it's more off the stratosphere <laughs> or parallel yeah. universe. Love it. Mm. So like, OK, so like I'm talking to you today as a member of Estona, which I would think is a very elite group. There's only 250 members, right? And this is like kind of peer elected or a peer you have to get recommended by your peers and everything. So I would see that as a powerful position to have in in society. How, how do you see it? They made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, they made I, a lot of mistakes. <laughs> uh, I think it's very honour, a great honour. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of privilege. And that said, Maeve, mm-hmm. Michael and Anne-Marie, I would imagine I worked very hard to get recognised by my peers and then by the Arts Council. It didn't just happen yesterday, mm. nor does it stop after your first play or indeed your first book. Now, there's a bit about they needed diversity and they need a lot more diversity. Mm. And diversity is not just about gender or sexual orientation. No, I suppose at right time, right place. And Michael, my former teacher, was the one that nominated me. <laughs> no, I suppose it was kind of serendipity and the other, and maybe I shouldn't say this, the other thing about Stone is I'm unlikely to get in between jobs after a project. No bar manager will hire me. And also, I'm an intellectual, Mm -hmm. and that's why I'm there. Not all the other stuff is kind of the furniture around my body or my identity, Mm. but I'm an intellectual. Mm. Is that okay to say that? Yeah. Well, is it okay to say it as opposed to being an artist or as opposed to being not an intellectual? Well, the two are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, they're linked. (laughs) (laughs) They're linked. Um, How about you? How do you feel about, you know, the outsider insider aspect of of your work and of your life? Well, I suppose uh, what Rosaline says about the problem nature of the language of outsider mm. insider really resonates um, I suppose I grew up in the Donegal Gaeltach the Irish was my first language and you know you grew up kind of 
out there uh, on the coast, you know, kind of in a way you're kind of isolated from a lot of the, um, you know, infrastructure of the country. And it was an economically deprived area. You know, it was a very um, kind of particular experience growing up in mm-hmm. the Donegal Gaeltacht. It was only really when I went to college in Dublin that I realised <laughs> I was a rural working class person. I mean, I never heard that language. It was only then that I realised there was no uh, room for the language I spoke, <laughs> you know, in the city. And becoming aware of myself in that way was kind of a bit of a shock, really. So you're perceived, I think, as an outsider. But I mean, living in that place, place and have a deep connection now to Donegal, you know, I feel it's very rooted, very central, very um, steeped in culture and folklore and traditions and all of the rich stuff. Um, But I'm quite sure that people think of the Gaeltacht areas as the edge, you know, and those Mm -hmm. are outsiders. So it's kind of an interesting tension. And I think all of that is useful when you're coming into an arts practice, (laughs) you know, who you are and what you're perceived to be. And the wrestle between both of those things Mm -hmm. is all really very useful when you start to make a poem or to make art. And it's so interesting because it's like, are you then writing to it's that like double consciousness thing that W.E.B. Du Bois talked about? Like, who are you? Are you just expressing yourself or are you trying to explain yourself or who are you writing for? Who are you making theatre for? You know, do you have a response to that? The more and more, I, th- I think I've been thinking about where the impulse to write poetry first came from. From for me, and you know, at various times, I've had different answers to that. But I think there's something to be said about coming out of a deeply working class culture where you make things. You know, you make things often with very little resources. Hmm. You learn to hustle, you learn to put things together. I remember being a child, you know, and I was very close to my grandmother and my little red wheelbarrow that I had like broken bits. And I remember bringing it to her, you know, my favourite toy. And she said, OK, well, don't panic. What do you have? And that kind of question of what do you have and how can you put things back together or make something new is still really at the centre of my own practice. Mm -hmm. So I'm not totally sure. And I don't know, Rosalind and Michael might have different ideas, but this kind of idea that you kind of sit and you you wait for the creative muse or you wait to be kind of taken by inspiration and you make art or a poem as a response to that is doesn't totally chime with my own experiences that there's a, a discipline and a craft of putting things together, of assembling, of taking all the different parts of your wheelbarrow and putting it back together again. Now, of course, within that, um, something extraordinary happens or something a little bit magic, you know, happens. But largely, it feels to me um, like a working class ethos that drives my own work. Hmm. Are you nodding your head there, Um, Michael? Did I see you nodding? Is any of that resonating with you? Um, Yeah, I kind of agree with uh, both of them, um, partly. Um, I'm just asking uh, about your own experience. mm, Yeah, because as Rosalind pointed out, if you have an edge, it presupposes a centre. And uh, I've always found that centre very hard to find. Mm. Uh, I've been looking for 40 years unsuccessfully for it. But uh, no, I grew up actually around um, on the edge of the city. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was driving over here uh, with Anne-Marie and I pointed out to her that the motorway we were driving along when I was a kid, these were dairy farms because wow. uh, my family lived on the last 
house on the last street in Finglas, basically. Yeah. So we just looked out over nature. And you, I really did have a physical sensation of being on the edge of the city. <laughs> but like most people who grew up in sort of working class suburbs, I had no idea what that city was. I'd never actually been there. <laughs> but on, a, on, on the other level, on the cultural level, I think when I started writing, I was very aware of being an outsider, I have to say, um, because working class culture in the 60s really wasn't, uh, or the 70s, wasn't really seen as being very mainstream in Irish poetry or in Irish culture in any shape. You had Brendan Behan, that was about it. Mm. And I think when uh, myself and Dermot Bulger, when we started in 1977, 78, when we founded Raven Arts Press, um, we weren't really thinking of a centre. We were thinking we're just going to do this because we want to do this. And in a sense, you have to be told you're on the edge before you really feel you're on the edge culturally. But it was only when we moved then into the centre and started visiting Merrion Square and talking to the Arts Council, mm. we realised that we were seen as being on the edge. And um, but you could you could also argue, as I have often done, that in a way Ireland is on the edge. We have to forget, you know, geographically, we're geographically here. and mm. culturally and economically and politically in many ways, we are on the edge of a much larger world, which is Europe. And so. I think as soon as I was able to walk, I went to Europe because I thought I'm getting away from that edge. I want to get to the centre. So I spent 25 years living in various European countries looking for that centre, uh, which and only to realise, in fact, that it doesn't really exist. Mm. So um, but I still have that edge feeling. Uh, could I ask maybe... Um Anne-Marie, do you see yourself as a political artist? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I don't see myself as anything other than a poet who tries to make things and discover and have surprises along the way. Um, However, it does so happen that a lot of my writing obsessions, which are often around kind of state histories and the lives of women and children and, um, you know, echoes in the landscape of the historical past. And a lot of that ends up producing poetry that... um, I suppose, has a kind of political resonance to it, mm. you know, but that is really kind of something that happens outside of my control. I mean, I just sit down to write my subconscious self, you know, I just sit down to write the, the ghosts that won't kind of go, you know, leave me. Mm. And um, and there are very personal reasons why I write those things. Mm. I mentioned that my father was born in Castle Pollard, but I also grew up in a family that fostered children. So I had like, you know, 30, over 30 foster siblings. So I had this kind of unusual experience as a young person of living alongside children who'd been separated by the state from their families. Mm. And so I don't know if it's the same for every writer, but, you know, your life, your writing life or your young life is like this uh, is like this record and it gets kind of jarred at certain points. And I think, you know, something got jarred in my, you know, around the age of 11 when my parents started to foster children. And all of my writing is really me trying to make sense of how do I fit into that story? Mm. How does my family fit into that story? And how does that story fit into the story of the state and the country? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all personal. 
It's all deeply, deeply personal. Um, and then sometimes you end up writing these poems and that they do have a political bent, but that's not the first pursuit mm. for me. You're kind of nodding. You're well, that, are you just agreed? Well, the problem is, I mean, you're right that, that nobody start or not, not many people start off saying I'm going to be a political poet. The problem is that you're a poet and then other people say, well, that's political. Then you're a political poet mm. and then you're labelled. That yeah. you. That's what happened to me. It happens mm-hmm. to lots of people mm. and it it never seems to go away. And it's really mm. fascinating to see how it operates because it's a way of kind of undermining you by saying, well, that's just politics. And my last book, Liberty Hall, was the long poem in it was a deliberate attempt to kind of tell the history of a working class family, but from the inside, uh, the emotional weather in the family. And a couple of people reviewed it and said, you know, it's a very political book. So if you write about your personal life and it's a working class family, it's political. If you write about your personal life or the personal life of a middle class family, it's personal. So the political mm. thing is a way of it's, a, it's like a euphemism for working class or left wing, you know, because everybody is political, ultimately. So mm. I, fe- I find that something that I used to worry about at the beginning because mm. I felt it was a way of sidelining me. But then I you know, learned to stop worrying and just embrace mm. it. <laughs> but it is it's it's a strange thing. But then we do we we're also part of this culture where the political has always kind of, you know, sat mm. side by side with artistic pursuits and dreaming and wanting to transform yeah. experience into a song or a poem or mm. so I I mean I don't know if that makes us culturally unique, but the mm. the two things have often been complementary, people who make social change and people who make art in conversation with each other. Mm. Yeah, but I think it has to do also with the nature of poetry in different countries, because Mm -hmm. English poetry tends to be very unpolitical. Uh, It tends to be very personal. Mm -hmm. And if you write, say, about history or larger themes, it's immediately seen as being non non English. Whereas Mm -hmm. in Ireland, I mean, look at Yeats, people like that. Look, even Patrick Kavanagh could be seen as very political poets. They wrote directly about politics even. So, yeah, it could be a thing that in Ireland we do it and yet somehow or other it seems to go out of fashion and then it comes back into fashion that mm. certain people write about certain things. Rosalind, do you, where do you see the role of art as speaking to power? I'm going to make an answer of this. <laughs> so just bear with me. Um, my one, you know, the great African-American writer talks about becoming unconscious but remaining conscious and for me the language of human rights was how I survived it's the language of defending oneself it's the language of my generation crowder rights that said, I have been accused by critics, settled critics, able-bodied critics, who say my work is too polemic. And my response would be that some writers don't need to be political and that's fine others do 
I wish I wasn't. You know, I look at somebody like Bernadine, the, wo- the woman who wrote that wonderful novel, Girl, Woman, Thing, right think of the Irish woman who wrote Girl is a half-made thing. And I think they were very political narratives and trajectories. And yes, because it's in a certain genre, mm. they're not called political testimonies. But when you introduce the biography of a writer or the, the personal narrative, and suddenly the big P becomes you're positioned and you're restricted. There's also a bit about um, the inner conflict within myself that if I wanted to write a really apolitical woman, I would find that very challenging. Um, I would find writing a non-feminist woman even more challenging. And I don't mean the big F. It's a complicated and it's something I struggle. But at the same time, the personal will always be political. And there's also an intellectual curiosity an intellectual inner journey, an intellectual dialogue and monologue and tension and head fuck where you're thinking, leave the politics. But as a traveler writer of my generation, with my experience, I can't. I don't know how to do that. So when I reach that point, all I can do is honour, honour who I am, honour my lived reality and say, okay, this won't go down my head with a settled audience, but sure, what, like, (laughs) do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) I mean, the other thing is, they get... They want Marie Michael and, uh, and Marie might know or clarify this better. I don't really know how to articulate. They want a certain type mm. of political writer. They want a story where travelers are rescued by the settled superhero. Well, the they, white saviour narrative. They want that. And that's a very apolitical for me. In the same way in terms of disability identity and disability genre, they want you to get a cure, to stand up right. at the very end, right. to die, to walk up the aisle. And I'm your over in the side, you know what you're thinking? 
actually reinforcing and rewriting is emotional. Mm-hmm. It's cultural. There's a frisson around politics, but it's not mm-hmm. the center. That frisson, I think, is probably the the not. Yeah, but but speaking as as one of your settled critics who did say that about you, um, I think what I was getting at was was the the actual language, because when you bring the language of sociology and the language of political analysis into a poem, <laughs> I still f- have a problem with that. It's very hard. The language can contaminate a poem, even mm. if you bring in one wrong word from the wrong register. It will mm. just contaminate. It's like putting something into the water. On the other hand, there are poets who make a practice of using the language of sociology or the language of anthropology mm. or the language of metallurgy or mm. whatever. Michael, I felt really, really, really empowered when I wrote the poem, I am not your knacker. Mm. Mm. For me, that was to own that word and to throw it back. And also to give younger writers and younger travellers a mechanism of saying that word. You know, it's tough. And also if you think of hip-hop, African-American, Latino, they may not be like travellers, high art, where sociology isn't needed. But sometimes that's the only language mm. we well, know. You, well, you made that point that, that that was the language that liberated you. So you brought mm. it directly into the creative work. I guess that is the dance in the poem mm. Uh, mm. between, and I can only speak for, from a place of writing mm. poetry, between honouring who it is that we are um, and then also transforming that energy and mood and anger and fury into a poem mm, through yeah. language. I mean, I've been reading um, Audre Lorde's recently poetry is not a luxury and also reading her essays on the erotic and how to inhabit your anger and your fury, you know, is kind of also a kind of part of moving into the area of like being an ero- being erotic and being in charge of all of your energy and I think, you know, as writers, especially as poets, maybe we're so used to having these labels put on us, you know, you're a political poet or and I think you're right. Maybe we are political poets, but we're so resistant because what that has come Mm. to mean is like what I hear is, oh, you're a political poet, you're an angry poet, you know, Mm. and that gets my back up kind of straight away because there is (laughs) anger in my poems, but Mm. I would defend my right to own it. You know, it's part of having a place of, you know, having a place of power and speaking for a place of agency Talk and Talk more about being in a erotic poet. Well, I suppose <laughs> <laughs> I no no no. <laughs> That's not where she was no. going with this. I mean I was reading Audre Lorde and I was thinking about um one of my favourite poems, which is uh Don uh, Dunlog, which is an eighth century <laughs> ballad, uh, you know, largely thought to be written by a woman. And it's such a poem of like passion but also fury. You know, the woman is speaking to 
her the lover who jilted her from a place of you know she's you know she's really expressing the fullness of her anger Mm -hmm. and as I was reading Audre Lorde I was thinking you know she she talks in one of her essays about the sterile kind of word play that does go on, you know, in colonised language. And I really began to think about the tradition that I come out of, mm-hmm. whereas women were allowed to be mad as hell, yeah. you know? Yeah. And and that was, you know, that was a, an emotion that was valid. Whereas now, sometimes I'm writing and I'm publishing a poem and I'm thinking, oh God, is, are people going to deem this too angry? Is it going to be too furious? Am I going to get the label mm-hmm. slapped on me, my wrist slapped, you mm-hmm. know? Policing yourself. And yeah. Exactly. That yeah. is a problem, yeah. Mm-hmm. If it's never, never really goes away that kind of problem we're asking everybody and it's kind of a what's next question but you can make it whatever you like um, but it's what is your work at the moment is there things you're curious about that you're following up on next so I'd love to hear from you Michael um, well as usual I have n- numerous projects at various mm. stages of development Great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, at the moment, I'm I'm working on a prose book, which for me is very unusual. Mm. And um, the reason is that uh, during the whole lockdown, people were confronted with their archives, I suppose, to some extent. Yeah. And I realised I had a book that I'd written over the last 40 years in prose uh, of essays, um, uh, lectures and various stuff. And there's a, there are definite themes going through it. And I suddenly thought, um, Dermot Bulger once said to me years ago, he said, you know, the best book that any poet has is the one under his bed, by which he meant the press clippings, which people used to have press <laughs> clippings in suitcases under their beds. And I'm, it's it's a bit strange. It's an interesting process. It's like kind of, you're, it's like I'm dead and somebody, I'm somebody else editing really? my work. Yeah. Why? Because it's, it's like not familiar to you anymore? It's or? not really, no. Really? And I don't, it's, I don't, I, it is and it isn't, but I know I couldn't write like that now. So it's kind of like mm. interesting. Uh, a friend of mine once went into psychoanalysis and uh, for a year and I said to him, you know, Pat, what's it like? And he says, well, Michael, it's like eating your own vomit. And that's the, that's the experience I have with this book oh, uh, on, a, on a bad day on a good day. I think, wow, what a genius I had then. <laughs> How did I squander it? Yeah. But it's um, so that's kind of been occupying me recently. Um, it's 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 really a book about the themes part that what we've been talking about now, about my pursuit of this centre in Europe. So it's a kind of a slightly abstract kind of it's a very abstract. It's a it's a very abstract autobiography. Let's mm. put it that way. Um, nothing happens in it, but it's uh, no, no, <laughs> very few people are mentioned, but it's about my thoughts, I suppose. Yeah. And I don't remember having those thoughts. So it's kind of for me, it's like it is, it is Mad. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Um, Rosaline, what about yourself? Um, first of all, I'm having a rest. I had a really, really full on last year I had I play in the Abbey and I did a book. That said, I've been commissioned to do an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Um, Have you? Yes. And I'm afraid to say something too much because these things, you know, maybe they use that to do that. No. no, I know. And also I should have specified it doesn't have to be work thing. Even you saying next year, 
having a rest, that's something that you're doing. <laughs> and also, I'm writing a play called Backbone. And I'm kind of, I don't know whether Anne-Marie or Michael have ever experienced this as poets, but I say this is a playwright. I kind of, after my book, I was absolutely, and you may, if you wrote a book, um, shitless that I would never write again. Oh. Or that I would never. I have that every day. Or that I would <laughs> never. Gone. I would never fall in love with the idea of writing or writing. And I remember thinking David Bowie or Lou Reed or Johnny Mitchell and all the old crowd used to talk about the fear of the second album. Yeah. And um, just yesterday, I looked at what I'd written for Backbone and I thought, yeah, yeah, it's coming. Together. I also think, if I'm allowed to say this, that there's um, as a, as a writer, and maybe as poets, I don't know, that people think that they're in your bra and that you can just <laughs> whip them out. <laughs> and you're thinking, actually, it's, uh, there's a just, just gestational period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that um, you know, I would music and which is, I suppose, I'm, I'm, I'm staying at my time and mm. hanging out and doing nothing. Fantastic. Mm. I am, um, there's at the moment, actually, I don't know where it's on in Ireland, but a friend of mine, Joel Kim Booster, he did a version of Pride and Prejudice, but it's like a, it's a movie and it's a queer, like queer Asian Brilliant. version of uh, Pride and Prejudice it's set on Fire Island which is like the big Amazing. kind of queer getaway from New York City yeah. it's very funny it's very good well we have we have hopefully we'll be allowed to keep them a lesbian daughter <laughs> and of course we had to had someone with CP and yeah. one yeah. of the girls oh. how, how she finds what she needs to find. Oh, oh I love that idea. Mm. That's very exciting. Very high concept. Fuck off. And Marie, I never got your um I never got what you what you're on next and what you're doing next actually. Well, I just published a book last November. Okay. So definitely yeah. Which um, book is that, sorry? So that's The Poison Glen. Yes. Yeah. And um so I'm really enjoying touring that mm-hmm. and touring it in Ireland and then a few US dates coming up next year. And I love what happens the poem in a public space in front of an audience. Something that can't be replicated um on Zoom. Um oh, yeah. you know, there's something just magical that happens in that silence when you're speaking aloud uh, in front of an audience or some kind of communion I don't know that I just find very energising so I love the touring and readings and then 
I'm also collaborating again with a composer called Michael Gallen mm-hmm. and an animator called Ross Stewart. Oh. Uh, yeah. And we're, um, I don't want to say what it is we're working on. <laughs> is it a Pride and Prejudice? It's uh, not a Pride and Prejudice, uh, but it's it's. Yeah, I don't want to say too much okay. about it, but we are kind of looking at old superstitions that have been handed down from um, generation to generation and looking at cures and interviewing people about how they inherited cures from their um, parents or within their family. And that has been really fun because some of the cures that are still in practice and we're in Ireland are just extraordinary in and bizarre and um, just really lovely to spend time with. Um, met with this one lady recently and she was talking about having the cure for, um, I think it might have been an ailment like um, something maybe like asthma. But she's yeah. talking about, you know, how if somebody comes to her looking for the cure, she takes the blinkers off a donkey in the yard and puts the blinkers on the person with the ailment. And if it's a child, (laughs) she'll pass the child three times under the donkey. And I was just in heaven. I love all of this stuff because my brain is like trying to unravel. Okay, what's the root? Where is the meaning? You know, what? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, Obviously, we need to go to a doctor. You need medicine for, Mm. you know, like your body in the age that we're living in. But there's something in this about closing the space between the creature or the landscape and the self and bringing ourselves into a kind of deeper connection with wild things. And I'm just in heaven. I'm enjoying all of that. So we're just Mm. doing kind of interviews. And um, at some stage in the near future, it'll be something um, on a stage. And I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, very exciting. That is our final episode in the Curiosity series. I hope you've enjoyed getting curious about the creative work and lives of the artists that we featured in this series as much as I have. My thanks to all of them, all the artists who joined us over the last six episodes, who have so generously shared their insights into their own artistic practices and also into each other's work. It's been a fascinating journey, and it's one that we hope will continue in the near future. This series is produced by Milestone Inventive and Big O on behalf of the Arts Council of Ireland. I'm Maeve Higgins. Thank you so much for listening to the Curiosity Series.